Hey, welcome back to another Dispatch from Holly McKay. And uh, today we're going to talk about a couple of articles that Holly has recently written. And um, good morning, Holly. How are you? I'm doing well, Dennis. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Okay. So the first article that we're going to talk about that you wrote has to do with war crimes and in particular the war crimes that are beginning to be revealed that the Russians committed while they were occupying parts of Ukraine. And they seem to be pretty heinous. Um, I would say on the same order as Slobodan Milosevic uh, and, and what happened in Bosnia or uh, uh, Herzegovina back in the 90s. Um, so first impression, you know, like uh, the, uh, the severity of the war crimes compared to others that you've seen. What's your take on that? I mean, it looks pretty, it's pretty awful um, in terms of especially the images that are coming out of Butcher and they very much align with a lot of the anecdotes from people that I was interviewing when in Ukraine that were coming out of Butcher um, and some of the areas that were under Russian occupation of really just um, random, you know, very arbitrary shootings. Somebody would go out for a cigarette and they'd be shot. Someone would go to the mailbox and be shot. Um, you know, one of the survivors had said that that one of his neighbors had gone to deliver bread to a nearby village and was shot by the Russians who considered him to be then an activist when they questioned what he was doing. So these are these are both random killings and also uh, very deliberate killings in situations like that. And if you see those images of people that are clearly not a threat their hands are tied behind their backs and often blindfolded and shot in the back of the head execution style and really from a lot of them sort of the testimonies is that this is it you know it is a game of almost russian roulette and and um and by the looks of these images of course it's very hard to know but it certainly um you know, it hints at a lot of Russian, I think, the soldiers' frustration in not being able to take the city or keep the city the way that they had perhaps anticipated to do that. Um, so a lot of these killings are probably born out of that. But these are, these are civilians. These aren't even military targets. And, and there is, um, you know, there is nothing in legal code that enables you to, you know, kill an unarmed civilian. That in itself is a war crime. But, of course, getting to any sort of point of, of prosecution, although it sort of sounds simple from the surface it's really not that simple when it comes down to uh, collecting the evidence and and you have to have such a high bar of um of of evidence and proof and and you that bar is incredibly high i think people don't realize how high that bar is in terms of what groups like the international criminal court can really do um, you have to, and when there are situations when there are very few survivors too, it's often very difficult to um, to sort of paint that picture that would hold up uh, in court. Yeah, well, I mean, in your article, you pointed out, uh, and, and you've enumerated this a number of times, what the criteria is for an actual war crime, and um, so that's that that high bar measure in terms of the difference between soldiers on the ground and leadership. Uh, how long do you think it's going to take and how much work do you think it would take to actually create the compelling amount of evidence to actually get somebody for the crimes that have been committed? And clearly there have been some. Uh, it, um, and, you know, and essentially the question I'm asking is like, Holly, you're a professional war crimes investigator. You've been doing this for a very long time. How long do you think it'll take and how much work do you think it'll take to actually get one of these guys to justice? 
Well, if you look at a situation like Bosnia and someone like uh, Slobodan Milosevic, he, I mean, he, he, it took, I believe, seven years for him to finally be arrested once that war was over. I mean, he lived freely in the streets really up until then. And when he was finally brought in by the ICC, and then it took so long for him to actually go to trial, even when he was detained, that he died in jail. And because he died in jail, he was absolved of those crimes. The case disappeared. You know, you can't, the ICC does doesn't try a dead person and it also doesn't try anyone in in absentia which is also where the Putin factor comes in and um you know for Putin to to be sort of taken in they would have to have you know an active warrant for his arrest and he would have to effectively leave Russia for that and be handed over by either insiders Kremlin insiders that have, have turned rogue or he would have to leave the country and therefore be arrested by sort of a third party um, and there's just not a lot of hope that that would really happen um, because it's not likely for him to be leaving Russia anytime soon and even if he did um, it would probably only be to very friendly countries that are certainly not going to to hold him um, to accountable for the ICC so I think um, you know it, it is a very very rocky path and so much evidence really has to be collected. You have to have so many testimonials. You have to have, and that all has to be verified and fact-checked. And this is where it's really important for no exaggerations to happen and for nothing um, to sort of be taken out of context a little bit. And this is, you know, where the Ukrainians are going to have to do their best to, to leave emotions out of this and really stick to the facts. Because the second you can poke holes in these crimes, um, it starts to disappear. And I think if you look at history, we saw that a lot with, uh, with the Armenian genocide case, um, where, you know, Turkey obviously did these heinous things, but because they were able to then prove, um, levels of certain number exaggerations or other factors, it really made the case very much disappear from the international radar. And that, of course, is, is something that the Armenians are still continuing to fight and rightfully so. But they really, it, it is so difficult, especially in a time of war um, where you do have the fog of war, and that's obviously a very real thing. Um, you know, the job of the prosecution is really to to weed out um, any sort of emotional factors into that and biases, and just try to to get the facts. And, and it is very, very difficult. You're dealing with traumatized people. You're dealing with people fleeing the country to many different places, and it's very hard to to kind of verify that information when there is. Um, you know, a lot of people that that are you know would be perhaps considered to be not the most sort of reliable source. And even though we can see very, very blatantly, you know, the horrors of what's happening in places like Butcher and Mariupol and and other parts of Ukraine, but uh, to really get to the nuts and bolts of that, um, you know, that is that is a very difficult thing. And and really, what often happens in these cases is that you see foot soldiers that may be held accountable, but really because they're the ones who committed the crime, but going after the leadership, going after Putin, the people that never stepped foot in, in Ukraine when the war was happening, um, that is a lot more difficult. And so you have a category called crimes of aggression, and that is essentially what the ICC will sort of have to use to go after him because um, it's it's very hard to, to pin a pin a, a war crime on or a genocide even on somebody that isn't um isn't sort of sitting or committing the acts of a and atrocities themselves. So it, it is a very sort of complicated process. Yeah. Well, from what you just said, it sounds to me that from an investigation standpoint, 
your job is just beginning and you could very well be looking at this for the next decade. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to, um, you know, everybody wants swift justice, but, um, you know, as we have in the United States is that you, know, you do have to collect a, a very formidable body of evidence, um, in order to have a successful, uh, prosecution and, and trial in that. So, um, it does definitely sort of take time and, and you also have to remember Russia, Ukraine and the United States, none of which are, are members of the ICC and parties to that Rome statuette. So, um, you know, that really is, is, I mean, doesn't make it impossible, but it also limits sort of the, the footprint, if you will, that someone like Washington can sort of have or influence in that case. And it really does come down to the other countries that are members to that treaty to, um, to, you know, do, do the bulk of the work. Uh, well, there is a complication I wasn't aware of. So I learned something every day from you, Holly. Um, so let's talk about the other article that is featured in this this particular dispatch, which has to do with all of the countries that hesitated in condemning Russia for uh, the war in Ukraine. And uh, there are a number of them, including, you know, uh, the most, the, the largest and most notable, of course, being China. But there are other countries like India uh, that have held back on condemnation for the war. And you wrote an article about that, uh, that really, you know, delved into their motivations. And so what did you find when you were researching this thing? Well, there's been several resolutions, uh, in the United Nations. Um, so what we're sort of looking at with that, um, obviously there, there are sort of five countries that are, um, not towing, I guess, the line in, in condemning Russia. And, and first of all, you sort of have three that are actually voting it down completely, which is Syria, Belarus, and North Korea. And of course, Russia itself, um, that are, are voting it down. And, and then there's a, sorry, there's a, there's a fifth one, which is Eritrea, a country in, in the Horn of Africa, um, which typically stays out of these foreign quagmires, but, um, you know, for some reason, I guess they, they sort of feel a reliance to Russia for rebuilding and, and they're sort of using all those countries are kind of using the excuse of NATO expansion as being the instigator, uh, for the fighting rather than President Putin himself. Um, so then you're sort of looking at several other, other countries that are basically abstaining from voting, which some may say, you know, playing this sort of neutral card is in some ways condoning the behavior. And I can certainly, um, understand that argument. So you have countries like Azerbaijan, Burkina Faso, Ethiopia, Guinea, uh, Morocco, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. So there's several countries. But one I think that is is sort of really interesting in this is India. So it has sort of remained very mum on uh, on chiding the Kremlin's atrocities and and raising questions over how and why the country. And mind you, you know, India is a country that's received more than two billion in U.S. aid since uh, 2009, I believe, um, isn't necessarily taking Washington's side. And I think. A lot of that a stems from it has very strong um, oil and gas relationships with Russia, and it's and it's very much capitalizing on on being able to get a lot of that 
cheap gas at the moment, um, as a lot of other countries have, have pulled out of their oil contracts with Russia, whereas India's kind of ramped it up. Um, and so it sort of has that. And then it also sort of sees having to have a strong relationship with Russia as being something of an arbiter between itself and China. And, and you know, with many of the conflicts that are happening in the world, um, there is uh, ongoing skirmishes between India and China in the Himalayas. And of course, they, they border each other. So um, there's a lot of conflict there. So the way that I think that uh, New Delhi sort of looks at it is that if it sort of takes the Washington side, um, then, you know, it kind of gives carte blanche to Moscow and Beijing having a much stronger relationship, which could then effectively really hurt India um, in in its sort of fight with China. So I guess it, it sort of sees itself as being something of a of needing to have a relationship with them so that they can be something of sort of the... Um, the placeholder or the, or the middle person to kind of avoid that relationship from getting any stronger than it already is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, you, you, you asked me to, uh, for comments on this when you wrote the article and yeah. And, you know, in India is, did turn out to be one of those, uh, very conflicted cases where, uh, the self-interest of, of the Indian government, uh, in regards to preserving itself, uh, really did rise to, uh, levels where it affected their uh, ability to participate in the international community. Um, but I, I also noticed as far as the several of these other countries that there, there is a thread in, in the world that, uh, among theorists, uh, in particular, uh, many of them have written opinion editorials I've seen in, you know, some other uh, publications around the world. Al Jazeera uh, uh, published a few of these opinions that that does buy in to the American hegemony theory that, that Russia is uh, has been putting out. And um, from the point of view of, of of those countries, do you really think they believe that? as much as they seem to repeat the rhetoric or are they just towing the line with Moscow because they, uh, I mean, I, I look, I know countless Americans who believe that. So, um, you know, if people in America believe that and, um, and, you know, we have access to all the information here, um, then I certainly don't put it past a lot of these countries believing that. And you would be surprised how many people I know in this country who believe that. Um, really a lot um, and from all different levels. And so, you know, to a degree that that sort of propaganda line is, is sort of working very much outside of, of Russian borders. And it's it's hard to wrap your head around a little bit, but, but it is very much, um, it is very much <laughs> a very real thing that, that I see and hear every day. Every day I get messages from people um, that I know and that I know should be sort of smart, educated individuals that believe um, very much in sort of the Russian line of thinking. And, and even just with the case like Butcher, the amount of people that sort of tell me that this is a, could be a false flag operation and that the Ukrainians are staging this and all, all this sort of stuff. And it's it's really hard to respond to sometimes because it doesn't it's just very hard to to even sort of waste a breath entertaining these conspiracies, but they're very real and they permeate a lot of the fringes of society. Yeah. So, so that's probably another area that, uh, would you agree that, um, after this war is over, the, the situation will get muddled. I mean, you're already seeing, there was something about that. There was a demonstration in Germany where people were 
uh, putting Russian flags on cars that, uh, that there's going to be some sort of reversion to that argument after this war is over. And, um, it's not going to be as clean an end game as some people hope. Yeah, and look, you see the same thing really in every conflict. Um, you know, very similarly with, you know, Russians would be, would be bombing places in Syria and, and there was, you know, huge propaganda pushes against, um, you know, the white helmets and other sort of civil uh, groups that were, you know, mm-hmm. get, rescuing people from bombing and suddenly that was all staged too. And, and it's hard to imagine, you know, how this happens in, in our sort of day and age, but it very much does. It, it just, uh, with the invention, I think of the internet and the sort of the expansion on that, it's, um, it's just, you know, it's ever growing and, and it's something that's very hard to, um, I mean, you know, it's my word against yours, basically. So yeah. it's, it's really hard to, um, to sort of counter that and, uh, I don't really know what the solution is, but it's something that is, is growing a lot and, and we see that in so many conflicts. And, um, I, that's why I really, you know, think it's important when investigating the war crimes is to, you know, to really be able to, to go to the roots of the evidence. Otherwise, you know, the entire case falls apart if there are a tiny little, tiny little flaws. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, well, that's, that's, that, that's very true. And clearly, I mean, you know, like I remember the white helmet thing where, where all that thing was, was going on. People were saying that it's not true and all that kind of stuff. And I remember asking you about it and, um, and you said, well, it, it is true. They are doing that. And, and the evidence of it was because you were in Aleppo at the time <laughs> watching them do it. So, you know, that, that, that careful diligence, which a lot of media, and commentary doesn't have and that because uh, you're one of the few people that actually goes to these places sits there and and witnesses it firsthand and then reports about it so you know and that's the kind of thing that i think is necessary in order to create the objective view of what's going on and where where people are coming from that is needed to to record this properly in history and you know so the, the, you, you do good work holly and with you know and with that um you know, that, those are, those, that's a lot of information for the, 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 just expanding on these two articles. And thank you for that. So, um, um, any other word, uh, from, from Holly McKay and, and, uh, uh, your, your adventures before we close out this, um, segment? No really thing. Um, I guess I just got back from Belgium this morning. Um, so I was also doing some Ukraine work there, um, looking at sort of financing and, um, you know, evacuations and, um, alternative uh, currencies, which are a big thing now. So be more on, I guess, the, the, um, you know, the, the use of, of digital currencies in a time of war when you can't access, uh, traditional monetary funds, which has both positives and negatives. Um, but I think these are all interesting kind of things to look at, um, in terms of the future and how we look at rebuilding, how we look at wars and how they're going to be fought going forward. Well, there you go. So lots more work to come. And uh, with that, thank you, Holly McKay, for another uh, uh, dispatch, which people are listening to on Substack. And for those that stayed through the entire interview, thank you, of course. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Dennis.